Welcome back to I Loved This Conversation. I'm Alex Salzberg. This week, I'll say I'm an animation director. I just finished directing like a huge animated film project. And so I think I can safely say that. I'm also a storyboard artist. I'm doing a little bit of storyboarding work this week. And definitely a podcaster. Going to proudly say it because I'm so proud of this episode. This is my podcast where I talk to creative people in my growing creative community about what is going on in our creative lives. I'm at my desk in Boston, but as you know, I just spent a few months in Tel Aviv, and I've been kind of teasing it the last few weeks, but yeah, I've had some really incredible conversations there. In about three minutes, you'll hear my conversation with Noam Schuster Eliassi, an Israeli comedian who I sat down with when I was in Tel Aviv a couple weeks ago. Noam is currently in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where she's performing her show, Coexistence My Ass, uh, all this month until August 27th. I've been excited to share this conversation with you from the moment I recorded it. It's like incredible, eye-opening, funny, intense, personal. It just went to so many interesting and unexpected places. No matter how much you know and feel about Israel, Palestine, I'm almost certain that the the humanity, the perspective, the creativity that Noam generously shared with us in this conversation will have some effect on you. And I just, I don't know, I'm so excited that this podcast is a place where I can have someone share their perspective like that. So uh, let's get to it. But before we do, I will give context for a few things that folks in our American audience at least may or may not know. So these are just a few things Noam will refer to that I don't want you to feel like you missed something and are totally lost. We're going to talk a little about Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews. To oversimplify it, Ashkenazi Jews are Jews of European descent. This is probably the type of Jewish person an American is picturing. Yiddish, latkes, bagels, um... Fiddler on the Roof. A lot of secular American Jews as well are Ashkenazi, including myself. Um, and then Mizrahi Jews are Jews of Middle Eastern and North African descent. And there are a lot of uh, cultural differences between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi, um, including often how they look. The second thing I'll give context for, Noam briefly mentions a Corona hotel. It's kind of what it sounds like. Part of Israel's response to COVID included a period of time where they quarantined COVID patients uh, within a hotel in Jerusalem. And Noam spent some time there. And then last but not least, we are going to reference a little bit the current political situation in Israel. The shortest version I can give you is that the far-right leadership in Israel has recently passed legislation that takes power away from the judicial branch. And many Israelis, particularly Israelis on the left, feel that this threatens Israel's democracy. So there have been protests several times a week for the past couple months. I'm sorry if I explained any of that incompletely or incorrectly, but I just wanted folks to not be totally lost when we mention those things. Other than that, I think everything else is just going to resonate on a human level, no matter how much you know about the particular topics that Noam writes her comedy about. Okay. Uh, oh, last but not least, I don't know if I have to say this, but this episode has above average swearing. So if you're in a car or a room with people who you don't want to teach those words to, maybe listen later. All right. That's all. Let's meet our guest and hear her connection to me. My name is Noam, and I saw your message on Instagram. <laughs> accurate. Very accurate. <laughs> and then I saw some very cool animation. And oh, thank you. I, I, I love when people reach out to me on Instagram. Really. Yeah, same. Yeah. For formal, informal life advice, dating. Oh. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
because <laughs> I've been on the other side of it. Yeah. Of like really wanting to reach out and like really hoping that someone will see my message yeah. and respond. And yeah. Instagram is kind of in a way, I feel like the most likely place even for a celebrity to answer you themselves is on Instagram. Is on Instagram, definitely. So I've, I've gotten clients through Instagram for animation. and Nice. Um, I don't think I've gotten dates through Instagram, <laughs> but maybe I've tried. <laughs> so I'm going to start the question I ask everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noam, what is something you are currently going through in your creative life or where it overlaps with your real life? Oh, wow. So much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dealing with, I think, having the same amount of courage that I had when I just started. Mm. When I just started comedy, I was like posting everything, saying everything, trying out everything, putting my drafts out there to the world all the time. And then gradually when things are a bit more intense or like you've been through a thing or two. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When you get like more experience, you start being a little bit more calculated. And I think the thing I'm struggling with now because I'm I'm going to Edinburgh to the Fringe Festival. Which is amazing. That's so cool. And I'm, I'm so excited and I'm also so so anxious because last time I had like a big premiere scheduled at the Kennedy Center on May 2020. Wow. And in March, I found myself (laughs) locked in the Corona Hotel in Jerusalem, really sick. I mean, the show obviously changed and transformed to other things since then. But I think like now I'm sitting with my writer and I'm going to see the director that I'm working with, Sivan Batat, who's an incredible director, and I'm going to see her in Edinburgh. And I think you're a comedian, you want to be funny. Yeah. But I'm also a very very, very like serious and emotional person. (laughs) So I love making people laugh, but I also love hearing this like silence in the room of everyone captivated around Mm. something deep and painful. You know, this boundaries between like, how much do I want to make you laugh? And how much do I want like the most painful things about me to say them and still find something funny about them, but I don't want to compromise. Is it scary to have parts of your show where the response, as you said, is like a stunned silence or a thoughtful silence when, you know, getting laughs is so much more, in a sense, comforting and immediate. Is that scary for a comedian to be like, okay, this part I'm just saying and they're not going to laugh? Yeah, it's scary because you're kind of, I mean, the only way to find out anything is to try it. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, it's like, exactly. There's no way that I'm gonna know how anything is going to be received in the world unless yeah. we try. It. <laughs> this is why comedians like it is so terrifying. Oh my god! Because I'm an artist. I'm an animator, and yeah. I do comedy in my work. But at stand-up comedy, you have to practice with an audience. You yeah. can't practice behind closed yeah. doors. I mean, I'm sure there's ways you do things without an audience to prepare, but do you ever get used to it, practicing in front of an audience? I think that with time, I'm trusting myself more and more. I have this, oh my God, I'm terrified kind of moment before going on stage. Terrified that maybe someone in the audience already heard a joke or terrified that I won't handle the situation the best. And one of the reasons why I'm so in love with comedy is because you kind of learn to be compassionate about yourself. Mm. Like it's very hard for me to watch my stand-up clips after a show it's like why are you explaining this sentence over and over again just say the jokes and you're so self-critical and the more you practice and the more you're you're compassionate with yourself then you also get to this 
place where you can clean up and you can be a bit more I don't know it's like a lot of people who want to start doing comedy they come up to me for advice and everything and they want oh my god now I'm speaking like the comedians that I heard when I once started <laughs> right being just a few years in like yeah. seven or six years in even though I, I think I started doing comedy when I was seven years old right so, like always the, <laughs> the annoying charismatic kid in the family who yeah. was grabbing the mic and like everybody listen to me <laughs> I'm so talented <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> you know when we start and maybe you know that as an animator too like you want everything all at once you want to say yes. everything and you want to make everyone laugh oh and cry God, so, so much yeah. impatience so much yeah and you know this show for example that I'm working on called Coexistence My Ass <laughs> you can come check it out at the Ed, yes. Ed Fringe Festival and later on in much more exciting places, which I can't say yet. Okay. But yeah, y you know, the show looked completely different like two, three years ago before COVID. This show was supposed to end when I met the Dalai Lama <laughs> in December of 2019. Oh, wow. Okay. That's like, yeah. you know, we were just hearing about a weird virus in China. And I was, you know, I had this like sketch about solidarity and about how excited I was to meet the Dalai Lama. But yeah. I can't really remember anything <laughs> profound about. And I thought that this is where the show is going to end. And then everything changed. And since then, I've had so many more material that I couldn't bring into the show without the experience of failure, breaking my foot, demonstrating, going through the breakups, the freezing my eggs, like all these things that happen. So it's like your experience and your courage to take it on stage and to show it to the world. This is also what develops your craft. So you have to continue, basically. Something you said right at the beginning resonated with me is I also feel the longer I've gotten into my career, the more use the phrase like share your drafts. Uh -huh. Like I'm nostalgic for a time when I was in my early 20s and just sharing online or wherever any idea that popped into my yeah. head, any doodle. So yeah, some of my fear is now I have, I think, more anxiety about sharing mm. things that are unfinished or not up to my standards. But it sounds like on top of that, your work is A, very personal. I mean, you just mentioned, so, you know. Freezing my eggs. Yeah, freezing your eggs. <laughs> and, and you talk a lot about your identity and your stories. But then on top of that, your work is also very political. Political? Um, Me? <laughs> I don't know anything about politics. Uh, <laughs> um, those topics, is there anxiety about how those things will be received or is it more just about your art and like yeah. how ready it is? for prime time. Yeah. I mean, obviously intense topics, like the topics I bring up. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot of anxiety. Sometimes I get a lot of cursing and threats from, right. from everyone, by the way. I'm not immune to anything. When things go viral in Arabic, in Hebrew, in English, right. like people will attack you. I'm really sorry to say this like cliche thing that I'm going to say. <laughs> it's okay. <sighs> You know, my therapist canceled on me this morning. Oh. <laughs> so I feel like that you. is bad news for you. That is the best news for me. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you something that I should have told my therapist oh, in the morning. My God, I've never been happier to hear that. I wish I knew how to swim as well as I swim on those like intense issues with my professional side, like yeah. the comedy, knowing how to fail. And if I bomb on stage, there's no question in my mind that the next day I will get up again and try. Rejection from an audience, it sucks, but it drives me forward yeah, you know yeah. there is something about learning you know to swim with this anxiety I know how to deal with it like I know how to like fall and know that in a few days I'll pump myself up yeah. somehow I don't know and I wish I knew that in my 
personal life, like dealing with loneliness, with like failed relationships, with like emotional attachment, with like breakups and the more like intimate things that I'm still learning how to share and how to make fun of myself in those situations without just feeling like this empty hole in my heart, you know? So ironically, the things that seem like the most intense and political and scary, this is where I feel comfortable. That's that's very interesting. I'm going to ask, this is maybe a cliche follow-up question to like <laughs> what you said. Is it almost easier for you to talk about yourself to a room full of people? Is that easier than like talking to one person about your feelings, yeah. like a loved one or a partner or a date or whatever? Well, the cliche answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But... COVID taught me how to stay like in one place with one person and develop some emotional intimacy, not with a room full of people. And I think the reason why I'm having a hard time around these issues is because it's easy to come into a room full of people and commit for an hour and expose yourself and laugh and take selfies and funny videos and then just go home to to your little comfort zone with yourself. But I think when you do find a person that you have a bond with and that you actually want want to stay and spend hours with and it doesn't work out this is where it's really 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 hard for me to get over there's another like therapy question that i'm very unqualified to ask but maybe <laughs> consult with your doctor before. i know <laughs> exactly this podcast except for today with you it's not a replacement for therapy but do you feel maybe the, are there any parallels with like during covid getting at least more more comfortable being alone with one person, like being on that journey, does that coincide with your work as a comedian having more moments in your show that are those longer silences that aren't just for laughs? Yes, yes, absolutely. I have a tendency, I think also in the early kind of years with comedy, to speak really fast, to go to the next topic, to not leave a little, like, you know, be funny, be funny, what's next, what's next? And I have these moments where, you know, like when I talk about getting sick with COVID and going to Corona Hotel and feeling like I'm checking into the end of the world, there is like a momentum that is very speedy there. But I also know how within one chunk of funny story to take those pauses. But again, it takes so much practice and so much time on stage. I've just been really, 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 really lucky and privileged to get take. I deserve, you know, all the, you you know, all this time on stage that I that I have with really incredible audiences in May 2021, like two years ago, when there was another cycle of madness. And there was especially uh, in the mixed towns, the uh, Jewish Arab towns of uh, Lid and, uh, and and Haifa and th- there was a lot of violence and like mixed cities is where I do most of my shows right. to like Jewish and Arab audiences and I felt like an ambulance like after oh, wow. yeah after this time where I was just like going from city to city all the time and I was just like giving shows people were so so thirsty for it and of course most of it was comedy but a lot of it was also just like time together, me just saying, stating out the obvious things to like mixed audiences who just wanted to like breathe a little bit after. So I don't know how I got to this topic. Well, I think that's a good, I kind of, I do want to go into sort of your path and I, I will back up and be a little biographical because you brought up mixed cities. And from what I learned, you grew up in, and please correct me on the pronunciations, but Wahad al-Salam slash Nevis Shalom slash Oasis of Peace. It's funny because the autocorrect, when I write Nevis Shalom, it always corrects it to never Shalom. <laughs> never, oh no. It was, oh my God, I hate talking about this. Okay, you don't have to if you no, want. No, it's just like my entire childhood is like, tell us about where you grew up. It's basically, by definition, it's the only place where Jews and Palestinians mm-hmm. with Israeli citizenship 
Live Together by Choice. It was founded by Father Bruno Hussar, who was originally an Egyptian Jew, became a Dominican monk, and he wanted to like start a place where people come yeah. together and live together from two sides, basically. And then uh, Palestinian families, I mean, from 48 with Israeli citizenship and Jewish Israeli families started basically building the community together. My parents moved there in the 90s during the Oslo agreements. It's a lot of hype around there <laughs> about peace. Yeah. Well, so we'll we'll try to move away from this quickly. I don't want to make you talk yeah, about blah, your, blah, home blah, blah. your hometown so much. I guess my only question. So, okay. I'm like a liberal, white, American Jew. When I read about that town, there's a part of me that's like, oh, that's just so nice and comforting. Like, what a dream. Growing up there, did it fit whatever utopian ideal I have in my head? Um, no. <laughs> humans tend to ruin everything no i'm joking mm. i mean i mean i mean it's it's a small place it's yeah. a very very tiny village and i think when you put humans together they're just like <laughs> it doesn't matter jews arabs like create problems i mean i'm very grateful for my parents for mm -hmm. raising me and my brother there you know growing up in a place that basically taught me the truth about this land from both sides. Growing up with Palestinians is not just a, a nice slogan for me. Oh my God, I grew up with Arabs and right. I'm like, yeah, I speak Arabic. We were treated as kids as like the, um, it was like a little zoo mm. of like Westerners and journalists just coming in to witness the Jewish and Arab kids uh, who are singing yeah. Kumbaya together. And <laughs> you and I will change the world. Imagine all the people, you know, it was very much that. And I realized from a young age that this is what's happening. So there's like the cynical side of it, right? That mm -hmm. like I met Hillary Clinton yeah. in fifth grade with Sarah Netanyahu after, <laughs> after Rabin was murdered and Sarah mm -hmm. became the first lady of, yeah. uh, and she's still like, I'm talking to you about like know, primary school and I'm 36 and like, yeah. That's wild. It's, it, <laughs> It is, but you know, yeah. like Jane Fonda, Richard Gere, then later right. on Roger Waters, all these huge celebrities who are coming to see us, to meet us. Yeah. And they all confuse me with being Palestinian. Like I'm the only kind of like brown looking Jew, like all yeah. the kids are Ashkenazi. And it was very confusing, but I grew up fast. Or right. as my grandmother used to say, no, I'm stop eating so much bread. <laughs> like I grew up, I, I was tall and I was yeah. like I, I felt like an outsider all the time also because the leftists who were with me in in this village were very 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 Ashkenazi mm. and my grandmother is a Persian head covered Jewish like traditional yeah. woman who didn't need like these Westerners liberals to tell her how to live with Muslims like she just came from Iran like yeah so everything was very confusing my identity is was very very confusing to me but I knew that what's happening is unique and because I saw how my cousins and friends that I had later on when I moved to high school outside of the village because we don't have a high school, mm -hmm. I saw that they're completely isolated and segregated from anything Palestinian or Arab. So what seems like common sense to me, knowing when the holidays are, knowing what the independence day means to Palestinians, that it's not a celebration for them. Just like these very preliminary kind of things that I learned as a kid to adults in my family or yeah. in you know our like social circles it was not obvious at all so i learned very very quickly that we are outsiders but that it's very very unique and that i have kind of a role and a responsibility to play so yeah and i mean it sounds like um you were somewhat cynical at a young age about 
being the cute school children yeah. in Richard Gere's, you yeah. know, Middle East peace picture or whatever. Come have pancakes for peace, children for peace, kids for peace, toddlers for peace. Like, yeah. like <laughs> Was there a part of you in addition to that where you ever felt pressure like, okay, I'm from here. Part of my role in the world is to create peace. Yeah. Like I, if the conflict ends, I literally, I don't have identity. Hmm. I don't know who I am. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's. Yeah, that's why the other issue that I was telling you about, like my personal life, my, it, everything is so much around this. It gave me so much of my identity and so much. You know, some kids who grew up in Neve Shalom, in Never Shalom, they went to like high tech, whatever. They have yeah. this bug. They talk about where, where we grew up. They're part of it, but they didn't make it like a mission in their life. There's something about my identity and how things unfolded for me. It's just like a huge and a very, very important thing in my life. Yeah. Is that heavy? Like, yeah. do you feel like you're carrying it around all day? Yeah, oh my God, my <laughs> shoulders and my neck. It's like my <laughs> upper back. Everything is, yeah, yeah. It's very heavy. It's very heavy also because I'm not that great and I'm not that extraordinary. And if I'm able to make some sense into what's going on here, yeah. then why is it so fucking difficult for everyone? So that's interesting. You you sort of have a frustration with other people for not being like, hey, let me help you carry that. Yeah. Yeah. Even now with more artists and more like people from like the culture world here in Israel, like speaking up more. Yeah. They don't give a fuck about Palestinians. Right. They give a fuck about the privilege that we have in our little bubble Jewish democracy. Right. Even the labor to explain to liberals on why the fuck do you not care about Palestinian lives or humanity and you can only be empathetic towards Palestinians when, you know, an Israeli police guard shoots and kills an autistic boy in Jerusalem. And, you know, a lot of people around me in liberal circles, they're carrying his sign, and they're wearing his shirt, and they're able to be sympathetic with Palestinians when it's a very, very obvious kind of Palestinian victim. On a larger scale, when we are asked to, you know, really see Palestinians as humans, they have a right for protection, a right for all the human rights that we yeah. have. It's much, much harder for people even in these demonstrations right now in Israel against the current government. Right. We're asking them to make the connection to the occupation or to what the Palestinians are going through inside Israel and outside of Israel. And it's just almost impossible, except for a small minority of activists who are doing it. I can feel the heaviness of the weight that you're carrying when you talk about all of that. You started out carrying that weight in a more quote-unquote serious way, like working for the United Nations mm -hmm. and doing peace building work there. And then you made the transition to comedy. Did the weight get any lighter when you started um, using your art of comedy to carry it? Great question, actually. I was working for a peace building organization that is part of the UN and the methodology was to work with populations that are normally excluded from the common like peace camp in Israel. Yeah. So basically everyone, like 95% <laughs> of the population. And it reached a point where we, we were working with settlers, with some of the people who are now in very powerful positions. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to prevent them from being so extreme when they get to 
trying to include them in some kind of conversations and like going to Northern Ireland to learn about the peace process there so that they can, you know, make some comparisons and hopefully bring it here or whatever. I think part of my frustration when I was, quote unquote, like an activist, I was looking around me and I was like, I don't know if we're making any impact. I don't know if I'm touching anyone. All these reports and measure your impact, output, input, budgets, you know, all these very analytical things with my suit. And then the UN just shut us down. And for me, I realized that it's a moment because of the huge responsibility and everything that you said that you hear in my voice. I was like, I'm not going to another organization that does nothing. I'm taking my talents, my skills, my courage, my attempts to do anything, to use my voice. And I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to do this. And I think the first joke that went viral when I was making fun of like dictators in the, in the Gulf from normalizing ties with Israel. Like there's so much to joke about to kind of challenge these power dynamics of these like horrible leaders with horrible motives. When the first joke kind of reached millions, I was like, oh my God, I've been an activist for so long and I don't know how many people I reached. And then with this craft, I'm able to reach millions. And also the first time I um, performed at the Palestine Comedy Festival, invited by Palestinian comedians to perform there. And I I went off stage that night and I was crying because we live in a time where it's so hard to make a change and it's so hard to be together in every space. And suddenly this comedy thing gave me a, a voice. Were you the first Jewish performer ever in that festival? Yeah. What was wrapped up in that really strong feeling of being able to perform there? I think finally using the the mess in my stories, in my identities to create some kind of a connection with the audience. They're like, oh, you're Jewish and you grew up this way, (laughs) but you're pro-Palestinian and you're Iranian background. And it's like all of these things in the UN, I needed to make a lot of order and and analytics and like to be like with a tie and suit and like be very like analytical and here I'm just letting my messiness kind of on stage and also I mean it's so hopeless and so depressing the situation is so depressing and there are very limited amount of spaces where we can actually have this connection and the togetherness I would say that I was just so grateful that I have this space and this outlet and the mic to again I don't want to sound cliche but (laughs) yeah standing in front of Palestinian audiences excite me it moves me I'm grateful that I can do this at this time because everything is so difficult and there aren't many spaces where because all these like dialogue spaces they don't feel authentic anymore they don't feel right people are tired of it so the comedy has this way where it's not you know we're not trying to create like a dialogue and understanding (laughs) no yeah just no yeah do you feel that like as a comedian having a like a direct relationship with the people and also like you're not making any promises except like I want to connect with you. I want to entertain you. Do you feel you get more trust in that way with with any group? Yeah, because I'm also able to say more like unfiltered truth with comedy. I'm not calculating my words. You joke about the right. You joke about the left. You you joke about Palestinians. You joke about Israelis. You joke (laughs) about Mizrahis. You joke about Ashkenazis. Like you joke about everyone. And uh, the audience kind of sees that. You know, some of the criticism that I've done in my comedy about the Abraham Accords or like the normalization ties that Israel has with some Arab countries, there is a way that comedy allows me to bring out some truth that otherwise I'm just not good at it. Sitting and preaching to people about politics, it shuts them down. I am so grateful that I have this outlet. 
I mean, it's not easy, you know. Yeah. It's like <laughs> people come after you, they attack you. You know, a lot of jokes can make people listen to you, but then really like disconnect from you. So it's, it's, but this is how you reach people, you know, a lot of people, not by being polite. Because I imagine what probably happens is you, you enter into a topic in front of an audience and you can probably feel all their shoulders go up. Can you feel people relaxing as they like grow to trust you during one show? Yeah. Especially because my show, I mean, I hope that I'll have more time for it after I finish with touring. Yeah. And just go on regular like stand up nights and just talk about more day to day stuff and also like what's going on now. But because I'm doing my show in front of audiences now, I first bring them into this like very weird story of my life kind of. And then I'm like, oh, my God. And they're so confused. But <laughs> then by the end, they're with me. And I'm trying to tie as much topics about the feeling of being an outsider and mm. growing up in like a mixed kind of identity crisis that a lot of people actually relate to. Yeah. So I see where they start from the beginning when they hear all this mess. Oh my God, never shalom. And that <laughs> leftist parents who raised right. me with the kumbaya. Like, And then when I proceed with the story, I see that people are with me. Yeah. And it's really amazing to see people going through this journey in the audience with you. It's really nice. That's so cool. Something I think related to this, like that I'm really interested in. I'm interested in anyone who speaks multiple languages. Mm -hmm. um, but I think especially because not only do you speak multiple languages, like you create, if someone goes to your Instagram, they're going to see videos in Arabic. They're going to see videos in Hebrew, videos yeah. in English. It's ADHD on steroids. <laughs> it's My trilingual comedy is like an accelerator for my ADHD. You know, when you have this like monster and you're like, go ahead, monster, do your thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I guess my first question is like, do you feel you have any differences in your personality, whether as a performer or just as a person? Obviously, those overlap a lot in each language. In Hebrew and in Arabic, a lot of similarities mm -hmm. to the rhythm of the jokes, to the content, to how I feel with the audience. I'm a little bit isolated from Israelis and I'm a little bit isolated from Palestinians and I'm a little bit warmer with Israelis and I'm a little bit warmer with Palestinians. Like mm -hmm. I have like a love-hate relationship with both really because right. I don't really fit anywhere. Yeah. Like I'm not a mainstream Israeli comedian and yeah. you know Palestinians it's uh, I'm still building it like it's right. not like I, I, I don't know what to do with it that I can do comedy in Arabic it's like I try some stuff but I don't really know what I'm doing and in English it's really my my way to escape because I'm sorry but it's just so much easier to be in front of an audience that is not Jewish and not Arab. I get to explain things from scratch. They get to see this exotic <laughs> <laughs> story. An exotic uh, tall brown skin woman who comes from a conflict zone. You know, when I'm in front of like Palestinians and Israelis, it's like, oh, we know your father, we know your cousin. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, don't trick us with your conflict stories. When I'm in English, this distance heals me i'm hearing myself talking about us and i'm like oh my god i would like to export all the craziness that we are going through here outside to the world yeah. it brings me so much excitement you know i'm trying to think of other comedians who have grown up in very complex situations mm -hmm. like trevor noah whatever yeah what went through their minds when they were thinking how do i think about my situation here and I export it to the world in a way where even someone in, you know, Bangladesh, Scandinavia, who doesn't know much about Israel-Palestine can right. relate to the things that I'm talking about on a human level. Being critical of your own country, feeling like an outsider in your own country, 
feeling like an underdog, not being part of like the power system, feeling, you know, lonely, feeling like a woman who doesn't know yet how to combine a career and starting a family, having my eggs frozen in a freezer in a hospital in Tel Aviv. Like, you know, <laughs> my friends are like, I have to go pick up my kids from school. And I'm like, my kids are frozen <laughs> in the freezer. And I'm sure I'm not the only 30-something year old woman who is right. like super political, cares about her career, but also has a tender heart, wants to like start a family, meet someone. And it's nothing that happens to us happens just to us. Right. So my role is, to find out how what happens to me has a bigger story meaning role to other people yeah. and just like find them and hope that they hear me out and listen to me because I can't sit alone at home with it. Do you find, this is something people who've listened to this podcast have probably heard me say this in a million episodes, but I found as a creative person, the more specific I get with my work and my writing, like the yes. more like this is so specific to my experience, the more people oh, relate. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, it's crazy. I'm now incorporating a new text that I wrote into my show about my failure of being this like haughty Tel Avivian girl on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of the things that I said there is like how mad I am at my parents, you know, my leftist parents who mm -hmm. raised me in a way where, you know, when Tom was pulling my braids when I was in primary school, instead of teaching me that he does that because he's in love with me, they taught me about <laughs> patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> and every single, you know, like every single person in the audience can like, I mean, I think all parents are embarrassing. It's so true what you said. The more specific yeah. you get about your experience, it's actually not your experience. Right. It's right. others. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's others' experience. I, in my bat mitzvah, when I was 12 years old, I was already a size 43 in my shoes, like American 11. Very tall girl. Yeah. I felt like huge all the girls in my class had boyfriends they were like these tiny little cute girls and i can't find shoes and so on my bat mitzvah my mom took me to this shoe store in jaffa of this guy who was selling like big shoes for women and they looked like the scuba driver's shoes you know, <laughs> how did they the call flippers. Yeah, yeah. The flippers. I was like, yeah mom am i going with flippers to my but this is this is my experience yeah. in the world like standing on my bat mitzvah with flippers how am i almost six foot tall on my bat mitzvah and you know that feeling even a blonde hot skinny girl can relate right. when I write about the feeling of feeling too big for this world, huge, like an outsider. And so these kind of personal things, when incorporated into the like big messages yeah. that I have to say about like coexistence and the, the political situation here, when I incorporate these personal things, it really brings in the audience in a different way. Has that shifted over the years like did you start with more political stuff and then infuse more personal stuff or was it always overlapping always overlapping yeah. because where do comedians usually start right from what i have seen around me on open mics and what i've experienced is like you start usually from yourself experiences that you've experienced you know your name where you come from weird things your parents do like how you grew up crazy shit that happened to you and you just you kept it in a drawer inside of you and suddenly when you decided to do comedy you have to say these stories first to see how they are perceived by the audience and then continue on mm. so i had my like storage of crazy things that i just had to say to the world yeah like my name noam schuster it's like a European Ashkenazi MIT professor name. Like the only, like people call me Chomsky yeah. since because like, it's like the only norm they had. So of right. course I started my jokes from that. Yeah. 
as a Noam Schuster in Israel, like I send my CV everywhere. These are some of my first jokes. I send my CV everywhere. Like when I'm bored, I send my CV to NASA and they call me back and they're like, Mr. Schuster, would yeah. love to have you for an interview. So living as like a Mizrahi, like Middle Eastern looking woman in Israel with a name of an Ashkenazi man, I always get emails like, dear Mr. Schuster. And then I enter the room and like, where is Mr. Schuster? <laughs> where is Mr. Schuster? Yeah. This is how I should call my show. Where is Mr. Schuster? <laughs> you know, you start from what you know and you start from you start from the way the first audiences responded to you. Who are your first audiences? Usually your family and your friends. Yeah. Right. And then you continue like to see, oh, will that work? Will that work? It's very gradual process. You've mentioned so many elements of your identity, you know, everything from your height, your ethnicity to, you know, where you grew up and, and um, where your parents are from and all of this. Do you think all of those things and living with all those things made you funny? Or do you think you're funny anyway and then those things just happen to be the well that you go oh, to? listen, people learn to be funny because of very painful things. I learned to be funny because I needed to be like excellent in high school because I just didn't have anything else. Yeah. I was not really good in school. The only thing I liked was like literature, Arabic, and like Hebrew Bible. Because <laughs> like the stories are just insane. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and I learned to be funny so that I can be with the hot people. So I can be on stage so that someone will look at me. I didn't have other things that the people around me in school, I think, had. And it's about our body. It's about the, the perception we have of ourselves. And I, I don't want to make this just about body image. But sometimes it's our inner world. Mm -hmm. that If you have this perception and this experience about yourself, that you are an outsider, that you have something that you have to say, that you need something that will differentiate you. And being funny is a lot of times a defense mechanism. Being funny is a way for you to be dominant mm -hmm. in an environment where you're not sure if you're being seen. And when you're funny, everyone looks at you. When you're funny, people love you. And when you're funny, it's very demanding. Because then people are like, oh, you're the funny. Make us laugh. You know, yeah. Israelis are like, tell me a joke. You know, yeah. tell me, tell me, <laughs> tell me, tell me a joke. You're the funny. And sometimes you just want to be sad. Yeah. And sometimes you just want to be like one of the people who are just like in silence or not or uh, are not dominant. But the times where it's urgent for you <laughs> yeah. to be funny, you oh just you have to. Okay, I relate to so much of what you said. So I'm going to share something that I'm curious if you relate to this. One, one of, I mean, I'm not a stand-up comedian or performer, but I write comedy and I create yeah. cartoons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I related to body image, related to how I felt about myself feeling like an outsider, especially in high school and college. I definitely defined my identity around being funny. And I learned to tell stories in a funny way. And I have so many memories of college of winning over people at a party, not by being hot or cool or anything, <laughs> or at least not feeling that way, but by telling a story in a very yeah. funny way. And then people would remind the next time, oh, that story you told, whatever. And I found since college that the more work I've done on myself, the better my self-image is, the better my body image is. And none of that's perfect, but the better it's gotten. I think I'm still funny, but it's much less a part of my identity mm. to be the yeah. funny one. I'm curious if, if that made you think of anything. That's so interesting what you just said. I don't know if it's that linear for mm -hmm. me, if it's like, oh, when I'm feeling more anxious about myself and my body, then I need to be more funny. And if I'm yeah. kind of like chill and relaxed and more content, then I'm 
have let you know it's I'm not sure it's that like either or but I will say that before COVID I was heavier when I got COVID I lost my sense of taste and smell right. my Ashkenazi father could finally cook for me <laughs> <laughs> sorry shots fired <laughs> but I became skinnier mm-hmm. I lost kilograms and also part of my identity but it was like You know, I don't want to jump into making this conclusion, but I think that I was, when I was heavier and it was really, really funny and it was before COVID and mm-hmm. everything was going great. I didn't even stop for one second to check in with myself, how I'm feeling on the inside. Yeah. And I was just like, bam, 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 going. And I'm like, I don't care about food. I don't mm-hmm. care what I'm consuming. I remember like when I opened in the US for some big comedians, we were drinking a lot backstage yeah. and I was eating a lot like late at night after shows and stuff and everything was feeding this kind of adrenaline and enthusiasm that I have and when everything just dropped in COVID and I didn't have a choice because right. I lost my sense of taste and smell I didn't have an appetite everything stopped so I was just like alone and I wasn't hungry I wasn't hungry for my career I wasn't hungry for my food I wasn't hungry for anything and it makes you just discover really scary things about yourself on the inside that you're not used to I mean it was hard being funny during covid it was really really fucking hard but I just feel like it didn't make me less funny it just like made me realize that I was sometimes like covering up shit with like this adrenaline mm. and, and excitement and kind of shutting down some emotions with food I think the the key is to learn as much about yourself so you can maintain kind of everything together and you know be balanced so you don't have to be funny all the time right. and compromise and your health and, and I'm not talking about food because right, like right. I'm eating and yeah. you know it's all good I'm talking about being there for the excitement of other people and for the laughter of other people and sometimes you forget about yourself this is maybe a, a slight change of subject but it's kind of on the topic of like how and why we became funny the other reason I feel <laughs> that like I brought being funny into my identity or my skill set was growing up the way to to diffused tension in my family was with humor like mm-hmm. that that worked really well if I could find the right balance of like poking just enough fun at our family dynamic or at a member of the family that could sometimes even stop an argument or something and so that became my role in the family it still is I still catch myself doing that yeah. at a family dinner and so I'm curious if you relate to any of that and if that feels related at all to like the, the broader bigger heavier things you're doing which is like bringing comedy into the family political situations yeah I mean on one hand I think bringing comedy into some like tense political spaces yeah. like last week I spoke at a demonstration in Italia and half of my speech was jokes and yeah. making fun and it's my way of coping with the situation and it's also a way of like lightening things up and it's also a way of like saying harsh things that I want to say to these protesters and I don't want to yeah. say them in like a don't listen to me kind right. of way but I'm with you and I'm joking and the joke is on you and on me and the, and it makes them listen better the bringing the comedy into like tense political spaces it's what makes I guess my stand-up unique and it's also mm. like a lot of burden is there something you have to let go of to face an audience that maybe you have some negative feelings to like settlers and, yeah. and people you vastly politically disagree with is there something you have to let go of to talk to those groups you know what sometimes you When I'm about to perform in front of the closest most like preaching to the choir kind of audience I'm even more stressed I'm like these people mm. know what I'm about to tell them it's so annoying right. but I have fresh 
audience that doesn't necessarily agree with me, that maybe is hearing me for the first time. I love it. I love it because this is how you learn to be funny. People who will disagree with you, but you make them laugh anyways. This is right. the wonder of, you know, of comedy. Mainstream Israelis or Israelis from settlements hear a Jewish woman who grew up with Palestinians was able to tell them stories and make fun of herself where they're like, not only did we never hear about an experience like yours, you're making us laugh about it now. We have to get to our lightning round soon. Oh. I know. <laughs> Artists love talking about their process all the time. This is such a fun conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this has been so interesting. I guess my last question is a little more therapy full circle. Yeah. But I, I sort of been thinking about this through the conversation we were talking up front about like, you know, maybe you're feeling way more successful in your career, but the you're working on the the personal stuff and especially <laughs> the love life stuff. And something I can relate to, I think a lot of creative people can relate to, especially creative people with careers that are not easily summed up in one sentence. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it's hard for you sometimes to be understood? Not like as a comedian in an audience, but by someone across a table for them to fully understand like who you are as a creative person. I can explain to a person who was born in Scandinavia and has mm -hmm. never met a Middle Eastern person or a, yeah. a Jew or an Israeli. Like, I can explain. Yeah. <laughs> I love explaining. <laughs> I mean, I feel misunderstood largely in, in the world because things that make such common sense to me are like not happening. Yeah. I feel like there is an, a missing extra courage to realize that if you're listening to this, like we are part of a generation or maybe you're younger than me and you're part of a generation that has to do things a little bit differently in order to challenge everything that has been happening up until now. Yeah. And I'm talking about the discourse on Israel. I'm talking about our inner criticism on, on what is going on. Our definition to anti-Semitism even yeah. needs to be much more profound. Yeah. We cannot label everyone who has the slightest criticism on Israel as anti-Semitic. Right. So the conversation around this and the conversation around so many more explosive things just needs to be much more profound, I think. Yeah. Like mm. People almost aren't willing to have the scary, vulnerable conversation. It's scary. Yeah. It's very scary. How, how do you, because you, you are very good at going through that scariness. I love it. Yeah, okay. So you, <laughs> but like, what would be the first step for someone like, I mean, I'm, I'm scared to talk about some of that stuff in my work. Not that my work has been very political lately anyway, but like, I, I'd be scared even to, <laughs> to like make a film yeah. that takes place in Tel Aviv right. where I've spent a few months, you know, yeah. like, what's the first step for someone who's really intimidated by these things, but does care, does want to be part of a new generation, however old they are, yeah. of not being afraid to talk about this stuff? I was a freshman at Brandeis in 2007, and I was amazed you know, it was my first encounter with American Jews on Brandeis campus, a uh -huh. very pro-Israeli campus, but yeah. also very liberal. I was at Brandeis when Obama was elected. Like yeah. I was witnessing this like, crazy time, right? And before then, there were still conversations about Iraq and, you know, there's so much criticism on what the U.S. is doing and so much like anti-war <laughs> sentiment. And then I was like, okay, amazing, great. I'm in a yeah. liberal campus. Let me translate the exact same things that you're saying about Israel. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. But with Israel, it's like 2007. The campuses looked very different yeah. back then, right? Yeah. And then I realized, wow, it's like untouchable. This topic is mm -hmm. untouchable. It is so sensitive. Yeah. To the point where in my freshman year at Brandeis, two senators in the student union, they wanted 
to pass a resolution that all the student body has to celebrate Israel's Independence Day. Whoa. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, please don't do this. Like, why do my friends from Haiti yeah. have to celebrate this <laughs> right. Independence Day? Like, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. Why are you embarrassing? It's like, I felt like I'm so embarrassed. But right. like, just leave, leave Israel alone. This yeah. was my feeling. But today I feel so different. I mm. feel so different. I was like, today, I'm like, please don't leave Israel alone. <laughs> yeah. Please don't leave Israel alone. Because, and I'm saying this with some pain in my heart, that unfortunately, whatever happens here in Israel has consequences on your lives in the U.S. And whatever you're going through in the United States has consequences. Like, it, it's inseparable. Like, we've passed that stage. So this is a very, very complex conversation. And we need to have these conversations because Israel right now, I mean, in my opinion, it was never a democracy. It, it, it was a democracy for a very, very small elite group of founders who have benefited from the privileges of establishing the state. Like yeah. my family who came in the 50s from Iran and Romania, they were put in like uh, Ma'abarot, the transitional camps. They were never part of like the establishment here. So the establishment did a lot of harm to Palestinians and then continued to do a lot of harm to some Jewish populations yeah. as well. So it's a very, very complex conversation overall. And right now people need to listen to the very, very harsh truth, first of all, about our history, right? The truth about what happens here, what happened here, and how people really, really suffered and continue to suffer with what's happening with this this government. These changes that are happening right now, you know, some people dismiss it and say, oh, you know, the Israeli democracy was never a strong democracy and, and you're just, you know, you're scared for no reason. The unlimited amount of power that very, very dangerous people are going to have right now yeah. is going to influence directly Jews who are queer, Jews who choose to be critical of this place, women, you know, so this relationship with the country that is supposed to like represent you as a Jew is undergoing some horrific stuff. As a Jew, like, where are you? Are you part of this conversation? Wow, I we just got into like no, a very, very big, big. I love hearing your perspective. <laughs> it's hard to transition from that to yeah. something called the lightning round. <laughs> but I guess my last question, and this is maybe an unfairly broad question, mm -hmm. but where do, where do you fall right now, just today, on the scale of like hopeful to hopeless? You know, I have moments of hopelessness yeah. and it's fine and it's human and everything. I'm hopeful because I we don't have the privilege to like, it's not like I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. It's not like I have another passport. But if you are an American passport holder <laughs> and you like my voice and <laughs> it's just kidding. I mean, most of the audience here of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So this is specifically to single people. At this yeah. point, I'm open to everyone. <laughs> and she reads her Instagram DMs. <laughs> no, but it's not like I have another passport, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and even if I did have have another passport this is my home this is the home we fight for i specifically intend on fighting for palestinians and not just for jewish <laughs> democracy right. yeah you know you have your hopeless moments and then you pick yourself up and you continue doing what you're doing because my grandmother is a holocaust survivor my Iranian grandmother on the other side came here with nothing and yeah. was in a like transitional camp living in poverty. So I am made from blood of, you know, ancestors uh, that can resist, fight, make something out of this situation. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, Profound. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's not funny. <laughs> Aren't you a comedian? Yeah. Oh, God. Comedians are so sad. We, we're miserable when we're not funny. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Um, 
All right, we got to jump to our lightning round. Your your answers don't have to be lightning fast. So our first lightning round question is, what is something you've learned the hard way that you'd be happy to just tell someone the lesson so they could not have to go through all that? Don't try to like fit somewhere where you don't. Like if your gut is telling you that this is not the place for you, like trust your gut. Don't um, give yourself a hard time. You're not going to fit everywhere. Go to places that you fit more. Like don't try to fit in places that don't make you feel comfortable. And then our second lightning round question is, what is something you learned the hard way in your life that you're glad you learned the hard way? For you, there was no better way to learn it, even though it was awful. Yeah. The power of writing, like Mm. actually sitting down and writing. Like I improvise a lot in my comedy and I like sometimes have an idea and then I play with it on stage. But the power of sitting down, writing stuff... Going over what you wrote, (laughs) working on what you wrote, and taking it on stage in a respectful way after you've done the work. Mm. Right. (laughs) Writing is like, I've found, I think a lot of creative people agree, the hardest thing to just sit down and do. Yeah. What's your routine around that? Like, what Mm. time of day? What are you, what's your beverage next to the computer? Sometimes, like have everything right. You know, my desk is ready and the, I open my computer and I have a little iced coffee like yeah. the influencer. And I'm like, oh my God. And then I pick up my phone yeah. and I start going on social media and then I put my phone down and I look at the screen. I'm like, I don't have anything to write about. Yeah. And then I take a sip and then I go, maybe I'll just take a date and like five almonds and maybe it will <laughs> give me some energy and then I'll like write this amazing story yeah. about this and this and then I pick up my phone and then nothing comes up. And it's almost time to go to where I have to go and I need to write this down. I need I need to write down something, right? And I have six hours and the six hours <laughs> start <laughs> shrinking. Yep. And then you just have to take a nap. Okay, I'll just take a 20 minute nap. And then, you know what? I'm a freelance. I don't have to rush like the creative process. It uh-huh. will come to me. Close down the computer. Go listen to, go take a walk. Go this, go that. Open the computer. Still nothing comes up. Shut down my computer. I see I have 45 minutes. I open my Google Docs and start a new <laughs> document. And then I start just writing something. And I type something that is coming from the heart. And, oh my, and I have to go and I'm putting <laughs> on my shoes. And I'm like, oh, and I'm writing while I'm doing something else. Some of the best jokes. Yeah. Or some of the best stories. In like last minute. I don't know. Every day is different. Are you hard on yourself on the days where you only get one note after six hours? Yes. Yeah. But it's so much work. (laughs) Inner work. Yeah. It's the inner work. It's those knives in your head (laughs) that are killing yourself. Oh, my God. Yeah. You... Sorry, I'm speaking to myself right now. Okay, Really. Gracious moments of self-compassion. Really. If you are on your sofa watching something, eating something, you're on social media, just let yeah. it go. Let yourself do that. Don't triple guilt yourself. <laughs> like, yeah. Just let it go. Yeah. No. Let this day, two days, three days, just let it be. Somehow no one seems to feel lazier than those of us who are constantly <laughs> creating. <laughs> I know. I have a friend who has to get up in the morning and get ready and go to an office and work in an office in a job where she knows what she's doing. She knows what she's being asked for. She has tasks she needs to complete. And that's her sanity. Yeah. And I think that this would be my insanity. Like, like, I... When yeah. I'm really tired, I envy those friends. And then I walk myself through it. And by day three, I'm, no. I'm 
insane. They <laughs> they run to the bathroom and call us from the bathroom because they're taking like a 30 minute TikTok break yeah. in the bathroom. Or they're watching your comedy and <laughs> exactly. my animation in the bathroom. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> People watch us when they take a shit. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> what an amazing way to end <laughs> this question well our last lightning round question um, is what is your favorite thing to do that has nothing to do with comedy or activism or, or any of the stuff surrounding your creative life nothing has nothing <laughs> to do with my comedy uh, well, no just kidding I mean probably true but yeah as much as you can separate yeah food yeah, yeah. no but food is <laughs> <laughs> if I'm making hummus, is it Israeli hummus right, or is it Palestinian? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say dancing, but come on. I go to these like leftist parties with Arabic music. <laughs> it's so political. Dancing is resistance. <laughs> Just kidding. No, no, no. I'm going to find yoga. Yoga. But okay. why do I need yoga? Because, yeah, I guess yeah, we, what we're learning everything. in this question is we can't. Separate. Does it always happen to you? Some people, some people have a life. <laughs> yeah, some people do. These are all good answers. Well, what, what's your, um, what's your favorite thing to cook? Persian Jewish food that I learned from my grandma and my mom. I love making it, and also going to the market, picking up like fresh stuff, and making Mediterranean food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that will make you live to yeah, hundred. Right. Apparently, <laughs> food. Food. I love it. All right. Well, my last question is, Noam, if people want to um, find you, follow you on Instagram, slide into your DMs, uh, <laughs> or also if people happen to be in the UK and want to go see your Edinburgh show coming up, where can people find and follow you? I am coming to the US also. In oh. the, I think it will be in the fall, but the dates are not finalized yet. But I'll be performing my Edinburgh show, which will be going on for the entire festival mm -hmm. from August 3rd to August 27th in Edinburgh, Scotland. You'll find like thousands of shows, not just mine. But so if you're coming <laughs> to the festival, I'll be happy to see you and follow me on Noam underscore June, J-O-O-N. And I will be in New York, I think the first stop in the US will be in New York. So please follow and come to my show. Right. And yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait. Yeah, okay. me too. No, um, I really appreciate you chatting with me about all of this. I'm so happy your therapist canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I had a really good time. Can't wait to see the animation. <laughs> oh, yes, I know. Thanks so much. All right. Wow. Thanks again to Noam Schuster-Eliassi for that amazing conversation. If you happen to be in Scotland this month, please go see her Edinburgh Friends show. But either way, follow her stuff. There's a lot of comedy you can watch online. And uh, she'll also give updates about her upcoming U.S. shows, which I'm definitely going to try to go to. So maybe I'll see you there. To support this podcast, do all the things you can do, like, subscribe, review. We could really use some reviews. So write something nice on your streaming thing. Um, but even more so, if you're anything like me, one of the ways that you learn about new podcasts is when your friend or family member sends you just like a really good episode to listen to and then you get hooked. I think this is a really good episode to send to a friend or family member. I'm going to send this one around to people who maybe haven't heard it yet. So uh, share this with people in your life who you think would be interested. The theme music is by Typist, which is the solo project of my brother Adam, who mixed this episode and got it to your ears. Did that backwards, but I think that's okay. 
As always, I like to recommend another episode or two if you want to keep the good conversations flowing into your ears. I think if you liked this one, you'll really enjoy the Sarah E. Jenkins episode, which was, I think, episode three of this podcast, so a while ago. Uh, They talk a lot also about their unique perspective based on where they grew up. And then also uh, the McCurson episode, which was more recent for a similar reason. McCurson talks also a lot about how his identity and his values were formed by his upbringing. Okay, that's all. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with another amazing conversation with another amazing creative person. So thank you. For real, thank you for listening. I'm so happy I get to do this.